Good morning. We are um, turning now in our Bibles to Psalm 131, part of the Songs of Ascent. And uh, this is one of the shortest of the Psalms that you and I are turning to. It's three verses in length. And what we find is that the Songs of Ascent, which last from Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, encapsulate the experiences of people who have made their way on a journey, made, made their way to Jerusalem. It's called Songs of Ascent, as we've said in prior weeks, because they're ascending hills to be able to get to the city set on a hill, which, of course, is Jerusalem. And here we find, in three verses now, what David is doing is speaking on one hand, I suppose uh, autobiographically, but most definitely uh, expressing himself poetically, he wants to talk about matters pertaining to humility. To talk about humility means that we have to understand not how it is conjured in and of ourselves, but rather how we develop an attitude in relationship to God, that God is sovereign. God is the creator and we are the created. And God is embelled with holiness and we with sinfulness. And so when we understand ourselves in right relationship with who God is, then we have a better understanding of what biblical humility is all about. What astounds us when we are looking at David is that David combines ability with humility. Somebody who is this gifted as David is, uh, a warrior, great leader, writer, musician, poet, on and on and on we can go. As a man marked by ability, but the extraordinary aspect of his relationship with God is that simultaneously, his life is distinguished by humility. And so what we want to do is to explore this combination of ability and humility. In particular, understand how it worked itself out in the relationship that David had, not only with God, of course, but in comparison with his predecessor, Saul, and his supposed successor, and I say supposed, Absalom, when in reality, all of this has to do with who David is in relationship to who God is. And so with that being said, Psalm 131, 1 through 3, shares with us these thoughts that it is a song of a sense of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time, this time forth and forevermore.
Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, for those of prior service, for those joining online as I speak, what we want to do is to stay focused upon you. These thoughts are not to be based upon human opinion, but rather upon uh, biblical truth. We want to take what's timeless and apply it in a way that's timely. We want to be able to take changeless truths and relate them to these changeable times in which we live. We want to be able to understand as we examine the depths of biblical humility that what we need to do is to get beyond the psychology of this, understand the theology of this. We are dealing with humanity, fallen humanity, our sinfulness in comparison with your holiness, the fact that we are the created and you are the creator, that you are sovereign, we are the ones to submit. All of this now puts us in puts a proper perspective into what it is that we are thinking about, examining, reflecting upon uh, during this time together. We want to see the big picture and to understand how we relate to you and to modern day life. For the one who's tuning in right now and struggling, there might be some extraordinary issues that uh, weigh him or her down, minister to the needs of the hour. For those that have been in or are currently in this facility on this campus today, I pray that you'll pour your spirit upon them in a very extraordinary way. That if there are those coming that do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, they will put faith and trust in him alone. And for those that do, Father, we are called, uh, we're on mission and to multiply followers of Jesus Christ. So, Father, as we address the issues of pride versus humility during this time together, warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and Him only, and we pray these things still again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was the year 1847 when a physician in Scotland, Sir James Simpson, discovered that chloroform could be used as an anesthetic. Um, it would be used to assist people in the whole matter of managing pain in relationship to surgery. From his early experience, Dr. Simpson made it possible for people to get through what might be described in his biography as the most dangerous operations without fear pain and suffering. And some people even claim that his was one of the most significant discoveries of modern day medicine. Well, the rest of the story. Where some years later, while lecturing at the University of Edinburgh, Dr. Simpson was asked by one of his medical students, Sir, what do you consider to be the most valuable discovery of your lifetime? because he had been involved in many discoveries. And to the surprise of his students who had expected him to refer to chloroform, Dr. Simpson replied, 
My most valuable discovery was when I discovered myself as a sinner and that Jesus Christ had died for my sins. This is the essence of humility wrapped up in a testimony. And when you look at a man who is distinguished by such ability as Dr. Simpson and realize that he combined that with an extraordinary, what I will call this one, biblical humility, uh, this is what captures the attention of society when a person is not interested in drawing attention to himself or herself, but to the sovereign God who sent Jesus Christ to die for your sins and die for my sins. With this in mind, what I would love to do in these moments together is to draw out three significant aspects of what we will call authentic biblical humility that are found in these verses so that on our journey of life we can, we can, we can ponder this and apply this to the way in which we're to live before God. Out of verse 1, as you and I, as we establish humility before our, our sovereign Lord, I want to note, first of all, the contentment that you and I, we need to develop. Notice how this begins. It's uppercase from the get-go. It is all about the Lord from the get-go, which ought to be the way in which our life journey is all about. You can almost sense the exhale. It's the, oh, Lord, that stands out here. And with that exhale, most likely now, David, as he pens these thoughts, and now people, as they are arriving in Jerusalem, are perhaps carrying these thoughts in hand. Songs of Ascent. Here, David would have penned for generations to come, autobiographically yet poetically, my heart is not lifted up. Notice the extraordinary restraint that he has placed, but notice at the very onset that he is talking about his heart. In the same verse, he will talk about the eyes. That means then that what David is doing is that he is moving from what I will describe as the internal journey through and into the external journey of his own being. Now, when he says, my heart is not lifted up, what I want to do is to pause and think about one whose heart, in fact, was lifted up and develop the contrast. Because in Isaiah chapter 14, beginning with verse 12, you and I are informed that when it came to the evil one and how sin entered into this world, it was a heart issue. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, the son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. Notice the descent from heaven to the ground. You who laid the nations low. But here it comes now in Isaiah 14. You said in your heart. So we're talking about the evil one. 
you said in your heart, I will ascend in heaven. Now compare that with what is penned here. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. And what David is now doing for you and me is he's reminding us that the prideful heart is one that mimics the ascent, the, the aggressive approach that, that Satan was attempting to utilize in his own sense of self-dignity. Um, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high, the evil one said. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. Uh, notice this continual effort to ascend. I will ascend above the clouds, the heights of the clouds. I will make myself, and here it comes, I will make myself, that's a creative act, like the Most High and compare that with what's described of the evil one in Ezekiel chapter 28, where once again, the matter of the heart is the heart of the matter. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. So now what we find at this point is we have the origins, the origins of pride wrapped up in the origins of sin. There in the evil one who was cast out of the heavens. David would theologically understand this. And so with uppercase, O Lord, L-O-R-D, in light of that understanding, my heart is not lifted up. Now, I would say that when the heart is attempting, when we are attempting to lift it up, so to speak, when we want to go above and beyond who we are in relationship to who God made us to be, we're going to have a hard time sleeping at night. Now, Mary Slessor, who ministered in Africa as a missionary, infested in that area with disease and indescribable danger, has often been referred to as one with an indomitable spirit. And in her journal, she wrote... I am not very particular about my bed these days. But as I lay on a few dirty sticks laid across and covered with a litter of dirty corn shells and plenty of rats and insects, three women and an infant three days old alongside and over a dozen sheep and goats and cows outside, my, you don't wonder that I slept little. But... I had such a comfortable, quiet night in my own heart. Are you cultivating the discipline <clears throat> of developing what you and I might describe here as a comfortable, quiet night in our own hearts? 
the prideful person struggles because he or she is always looking for what they currently do not have, longing to be something than they are, and always, always desiring to put self before God. David, on the other hand, refuses to mimic the evil one. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. Notice the restraints that he is placing then upon his own heart. But now I want you to be able to see how he moves from what I would describe as the internal onward into the external. In other words, matters of the heart to matters of the eyes. Do you see it? You are still in verse 1. For not only does he say, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, but furthermore, my eyes are not raised to high. Now, when it came to the point where the evil one wanted to tempt Eve in the Garden of Eden, I want you to ponder the connectedness between the matters of the heart and the matter of the eyes. Because in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent was more crafty, literally in the Hebrew, more alluring than any other beast of the field. And then we are told that the Lord God, uppercase Lord, had made. So now there is this encounter in the garden. He said to the woman, did God actually say? First question in history. But notice he dropped to the uppercase. He did not ask, did the Lord God say, because that's the covenantal relational name for God, and he lacked a personal relationship with God. So he drops that intentionally. First question in history, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Now, he has put the woman on the defensive. Pride does that. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but, and now she drops it. Not Lord God, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, but then she goes beyond the prohibition by furthermore, in other words, going beyond what God said, neither shall you touch it lest you die. In other words, Satan has set the trap he wants Eve to view God as a cosmic killjoy, which so many people who are, who are overwhelmed by pride tend to do. Now, once she's gone beyond what God had said, which is always a danger, the serpent then counters the woman and says, you will surely not die, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, here it comes, your eyes will be opened. Now, have I not just read with you, O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. Here now, the evil one, who has already predisposed his heart to, to resist God, rebel against God, now entraps humanity with the same mindset of working both internal and external dimensions. You eat of it, your eyes will be open. And what is, what is the lure here? 
you will be like God, which is what exactly he was all about, you see. In Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, knowing good from evil, we are informed then that when the women saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. He ate. And then we are told the eyes of both were opened. Now, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. Compare that then with what we just read regarding the evil one just a few moments ago, and not only Isaiah chapter 14, but Ezekiel 28. My eyes are not raised too high. Think of Eve succumbing to temptation, and then Adam and Eve, now their eyes are fixated upon, upon that tree, and pride tends to obsess. Pride tends to succumb to the obsessions. But now David has to counter that. He's got to resist that train of thought. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. And that word marvelous if we're using the English Standard Version. It's the same word for in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Government shall be upon his shoulders. He's called Wonderful Counselor, the first of the four inscriptions. The word wonderful in the Wonderful Counselor is the very same Hebrew word that is used here for marvelous. He resists tendency of trying to be other than what he is. Uh, I was reading the story of a college girl who went and visited the home of Beethoven, slipped under the rope, began to play Beethoven's piano, and uh, the tour guide heard her ask, I suppose every musician who comes here wants to play this piano. Well, he explained to her that recently the great pianist uh, Paderewski was visiting there and someone asked him to play the piano. And he replied, no, I do not feel worthy to play the great master's piano. I do not occupy myself with things too great, too marvelous, marvelous, pertains to the wonderful Counselor, the Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. For as the baptizer John, when confronted with a scenario where he was, he was by his own followers having to uh, respond to what Jesus Christ was doing, would he must increase, but I must decrease. And the person who can sleep well at night understands that relationship. He must increase and I must decrease. But the restless one, 
flips it and in essence is saying to God, I must increase and you must decrease. But then we go to the cross of Jesus Christ where here you and I find the ultimate aspects of humility worked out where I remember when a professor of mine, D.A. Carson, who had been in conversation with Carl Henry, uh, the founder of Christianity Today magazine, where they were seated in front of students at Trinity, and one posed the question, how does one maintain humility in life? Uh, Dr. Henry then responded, Position yourself at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. One cannot maintain pride when one is at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. For you see, it is at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ where the ultimate illustration of humility is found. For as Paul would write in Philippians chapter 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in, the human, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross and therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord you see in the battle of the cosmic realm between the evil one and the Trinitarian God it was a battle of lordship. David does not want to follow suit. David understands that he is the created one and God is the creator. He understands that he is he's marked by sinfulness and God is distinguished by holiness. And so in our journey, if you want to sleep at night, we establish humility before our sovereign Lord by noting, first of all, the contentment here. You see it, the contentment we need to develop as the created ones before our sovereign God. Now, once we've grasped that, we're on to the second aspect of biblical humility. It comes out of verse 2, that as we establish humility before our sovereign Lord, note furthermore the responsibility we need to accept. Because in verse 2, notice who does the calming. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. In other words, what David is now doing at this point is that he is personally taking responsibility for the way in which his soul is to be managed. He's not looking for external calm. 
he wants to make certain there is internal calm. Now, I want you to compare that with his, with his predecessor, Saul, and think seriously about the pride versus humility tension there found and represented by Saul pride, David humility. Think about the aspects of pride in Saul's life, the need for public recognition, the need for status, the need for the applause of, hum of humanity, where even though he was head and shoulders above all Israelites, he let David go into battle against Goliath. Don't underestimate the wording. God made certain we understood that it was Saul who was head and shoulders above all the other Israelites. In contrast, notice Goliath. But it's David who goes into battle, and as a result, the women of Israel are singing out loud that Saul slays his thousands, but David the ten thousands. Now, one aspect of Saul's pride, then, is extraordinary jealousy. He needs the applause of humanity, and when he doesn't get it, he is mocked by explosive anger, hurling swords and spears in the direction of David. Why? Because to calm his heart, he needed, inter he needed externals to continuously address the internals of his overall well-being. That's pride. And there was an impulsiveness to his decision-making, feelings of daily feeling threatened by, by David's growth in the eyes of others and a true lack of thankfulness that God had even placed him on a throne to begin with. And yet through it all, David was the one who would play the harp for Saul. This is where Saul required externals to, in essence, calm his heart. Now, the question is, what do you need to calm your heart? What David has modeled for us, then, this musician, is what I would call the music of the soul, whereby he introduces the new song of salvation to the soul of humanity, I have called. I'm not going to rely upon others to do it for me in my agitated state. Quieted my heart. And then what does he do? Through the use of simile for those that are English teachers here. Like a weaned child with its mother. And then to repeat itself with the word like. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Among the many biographies in our living room is one on Charles Coleman, great missionary to Japan and Korea. Remarkable testimony uh, to the nature and commitment of uh, 
being devoted to Jesus Christ. In his later years, in broken health, forced into early retirement, he had been an overseer of countless missionaries. One of his friends said this of him, quote, Nothing impressed me more than Mr. Coleman's quiet spirit. I never saw him ruffled, although at times I saw him wounded until the tears fell silently over his cheeks. He had a calm heart. And his secret cross internally became his crown. This is what David, in essence, is offering you and offering me when we're dealing with the externals of life. Are we going to allow them to calm our hearts? David is saying, don't do it. Let the internal shape the external rather than the external shape the internal. Just as he moved from eyes, excuse me, from the heart to the eyes of verse 1, now what he offers us is the personal responsibility of the I. I have calmed and quieted my soul. I'm not going to depend upon others to, to calm my agitated state. And when we are able to function this way, we function effectively for God's glory. And we can pray more effectively in the late night hours of life. Hondo's biographer describes a time in his life when his health was breaking and his, and his resources were all but gone. And there was a time when he thought about giving up, but then he rebounded. And what did he do? He composed the epic Messiah. And when you and I stand to sing the hallelujah chorus, the Lord omnipotent reigneth. Remember that that triumphant note was composed by a man who financially was broke and physically was half paralyzed. And yet was willing to take responsibility to calm his heart. Are you doing that? Or are you more like Saul to depend upon others to do it for you? We take responsibility on this life journey of ours. And so verse 1 is the contentment we need to develop, and verse 2 is the responsibility we need to accept, and then we end thirdly with the hope that we need to embrace because now you and I are informed in verse 3. He takes the exhale, O, of verse 1, and now he turns it from the vertical dimension, O Lord, to the horizontal Israel in verse 3 and tests in the form of a testimony, O Lord, or excuse me, O Israel, hope in whom? He lifts back up, and what I want you to see is the book ending of this psalm as it began with uppercase Lord, so it ends now with uppercase Lord, for those that are feeling hopeless in life, hope in the Lord. From this time forth on forevermore, Dr. Victor Franco, 
Austrian psychiatrist observed during the Holocaust that a prisoner did not continue to live very long after hope was lost. But even the slightest ray of hope, he writes, the rumor of better food, a whisper about an escape, helped the camp inmates to continue living because they're always looking forward to something greater than what was there. And for you who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we have what the Bible refers to as a living hope found in a living Savior who died on a cross, humbled himself to the point of death, but three days later, raised from the grave. And now you and I are able to see the connection between, between humility and hope that is found in the heart of the matter when Jesus Christ reigns within the sphere of our soul. Let's stand together. And so, Father, we thank you now. Three verses, we try to squeeze everything out of them that we can. And we realize that in this life's journey, chronicling the way the Psalms of Ascent uh, take us right into Jerusalem, we want these verses to take us right into your presence. And so if there's anything of a Saul syndrome here in any of our lives, where it's pride that's keeping us awake at night and not accepting the fact that you are sovereign so we don't have to be, the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man played out in the tensions of life. Remind us that, like Dr. Henry said, it's time to go to the foot of the cross, get things resolved, and ponder the fact that the one, the second member of the Trinity, who did not give up his divinity, took on humanity, and died in our place for our sins, our significance, and our faith, and our salvation is tied to him and him alone. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.